come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Well, let me start with a question this morning. What is it that makes you say, thank you? What is it that makes you say, thank you? It's a pretty common thing to say in our culture, especially among polite people. Often we say thank you when we recognize that someone has served us uh, in some way. Many people say thank you when they get their food from the drive through line or when the cashier hands them their goods and their receipt. Some drivers do the thank you wave uh, when you let them in in traffic. Some drivers don't do the thank you wave when you let them in in traffic. God loves them too. I once met a parent who told his children never, ever receive anything from anyone without saying thank you. That's putting it a little strongly, uh, but maybe good advice. So sometimes when we say thank you, what we're really doing is we're just moving the conversation along uh, in a pleasant enough way. Or maybe when we do the thank you wave, we're kind of apologizing for cutting in front of someone. But when we really mean it, when we are actually thanking someone, we are revealing that we value something. When we give thanks to someone, we are communicating to that person that you and what you have done is valuable to me. It's meaningful to me. Two examples. First example, you go to Chick-fil-A and you are handed hot, delicious food by friendly employees in a timely manner. And so from the bottom of your heart, you say, thank you. And Joe responds, my pleasure. You value the Chick-fil-A. You value what's been given to you and how it's been given to you. Second example, it's the middle of World War II, December 1940. Adolf Hitler gives a speech to German factory workers, and twice in the speech, Hitler expresses the German army's thanks to these factory workers for creating the weapons that have enabled Germany to take over Europe so quickly. Hitler thanked them. There's no indication that he had any relationship with them, but Hitler really valued the advance of the Third Reich. And he thanked the laborers who made it possible, even if manipulatively. When we give thanks, we reveal what we value. Well, as we start our series in Colossians this morning, what we find right at the beginning of the book is that Paul and Timothy, our authors, are giving thanks to God. You can see that there in the first three words of verse 3. I'm sorry, four words of verse 3. Verses 1 and 2 are a standard New Testament greeting. And there in verse 3, Paul writes, we always thank God. That really is the main thing going on in this text, you might have noticed. After the greeting, the rest of the passage really just unpacks Paul and Timothy's thanksgiving to God. 
So Lord permitting, this is what I'd like us to do this morning. Here is our roadmap for the sermon, if you are a note taker. So first, I want to spend just a few minutes introducing uh, the book of Colossians. I think right here at the outset of our new series, we'll be helped by some background material about the book of Colossians. And then second, by far our longest point, I want us to walk through this passage together. Not by far our longest point, don't worry. And as we do walk through this passage together in this second point, I want us to answer the question of why Paul and Timothy are giving thanks. So we're going to stop along the way to note some various features of the passage, but our main goal is to answer that question. Why are Paul and Timothy giving thanks? What is it that they value that gives rise to their gratitude? And then third and finally, I want us to think about one primary application of this passage in closing. Again, we'll make some applications along the way, uh, but primarily I want us to conclude by thinking about one central application of this text uh, to our lives. So that's the plan this morning. Introduce Colossians, ask why Paul and Timothy are giving thanks in this passage, uh, and apply this passage to our lives. So here we go. Point number one, uh, an introduction to the book of Colossians. I think the best way to introduce this book of Colossians is really to say something about each of the people that we meet in these first eight verses. So there in verse one, we're introduced to Paul and to Timothy. Then in verse two, we've got the saints or the holy ones or just the Christians who live at Colossae. And then fourth and finally, down in verse seven, we've got a man named Epaphras. So let me say a few things about each of these uh, characters. First, a few things about the apostle Paul. I trust this will be review uh, for many of us. So Paul was born around the same time as the Lord Jesus. He was both a Jew and a citizen of the Roman Empire, which would have given him many privileges. Paul's Jewish name was Saul, uh, but in most of the Bible, he is called Paul. I don't think that Saul's name was changed to Paul. It seems more likely, actually, that Paul, Saul Paul was given the name Paul from birth for use among Gentiles. That was a very common practice uh, in those days. So Saul or Paul was educated in the Old Testament scriptures by the famous Jewish rabbi named Gamaliel, and Paul's expertise in the Old Testament shines through very clearly in all of his writings. You probably know before his conversion, uh, Paul was extremely zealous in his practice of Judaism. In fact, when many of Paul's fellow Jews began to follow Jesus, Paul persecuted the church uh, violently and even to death because he saw Christianity as a false uh, religion. You can read about that in Acts chapter 7 and 8. But of course, Paul was dramatically converted to Christianity when the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him on his journey to Damascus around 34 AD. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. Uh, Paul became quite possibly the godliest Christian of all time. Uh, And Paul wasn't just a really godly guy. He was actually commissioned by Jesus to become one of his apostles or authoritative representatives. That's actually why we care what Paul wrote, because God made him an apostle, which means that Paul had authority to represent the gospel message and to write what would become uh, the writings of the New Testament. And as you can tell from verse 1, Colossians, this book or this letter, uh, is one of those writings. 
From what Paul says later in Colossians, we also know that he is writing from prison. Paul says that he got thrown into prison for following Jesus multiple times. And it seems most likely that Paul wrote Colossians either in the mid-50s A.D., when he was imprisoned in Ephesus, or in the early 60s A.D., when he was imprisoned in Rome. We can't be sure. I think it was probably from Ephesus in the mid-50s. So that is what you need to know about Paul. Well, what about Paul's young co-worker, Timothy, also mentioned there in verse 1? So we first meet Timothy in Acts chapter 16 in the Bible, uh, which describes one of Paul's missionary journeys. Timothy was from a small town called Lystra, which is in modern-day Turkey. Timothy's father was a Greek. Uh, Seems like his father was not a Christian. His mother was a Jew who had converted to Christianity. And Timothy was probably converted by Paul on his first missionary journey uh, to Lystra. When Paul visited Lystra again on his second journey, uh, Timothy joined Paul as a traveling companion. Uh, And at least once, Timothy also got thrown into prison for following Jesus. So Timothy is listed as a co-author here at the beginning of Colossians, uh, but by the end of chapter 1, Timothy kind of takes a back seat. Uh, Paul starts saying, I, instead of we, and it's clear that, that really Paul is the main author of this letter. It's like saying, after my parents brought me furniture, my mom and I organized the closet. It's kind of true, but it was definitely primarily my mom. And so it's possible that Paul mentions Timothy because Paul dictated the letter to Timothy, or maybe because he wanted Timothy to deliver the letter to Colossians. So that's Paul and Timothy. Those are our authors. Well, who are the Colossians, these saints in Christ at Colossae, as Paul addresses them? Well, they are, as verse 2 says, the saints who live in the city of Colossae. Colossae was also in modern Turkey, as was Lystra. Colossae was in a region called the Lycus Valley. Uh, It was about 120 miles away from the big city, Ephesus, uh, which was near the seacoast. Colossae was a reasonably prosperous city, not like a massive city like Rome, but not a small town either. We also know from tax records that there was a pretty sizable Jewish population in Colossae. And significantly, Paul himself never visited Colossae, as best we can tell. In chapter 2 of his letter, letter, Paul describes the Colossians as those who have not seen my face. So Paul in Colossians is writing to believers that he's never met, with whom he himself did not share the gospel. The man who did share the gospel with the Colossians is our fourth character in this passage, whose name was Epaphras. He gets mentioned there in verse 7. I'm told that the name Epaphras means handsome or charming, and allow me to just humbly suggest Epaphras as a biblical baby name. You can see there in verse 7 that Paul says that the Colossians heard the gospel from Epaphras. Paul also calls Epaphras our fellow worker. So interestingly, toward the end of the letter, Paul calls Epaphras one of you, speaking to the Colossians. So it seems that Epaphras originally was from Colossae. So Epaphras is from Colossae. It seems that he got converted probably by Paul and brought the gospel back to his hometown. And at the time that Paul is writing, Epaphras is with Paul and laboring with him. So putting it all together, here's what seems has happened in the lead up to the writing of the letter of the Colossians. 
Jesus saves Paul, makes him an apostle. Paul becomes a missionary, travels to Lystra. Timothy gets converted, later joins Paul in his travels. Paul and Timothy travel to the big city of Ephesus, where the gospel spreads like wildfire. Probably Epaphras converts from the ministry of Paul and Timothy in Ephesus. He brings the gospel back to his hometown in Colossae, then brings the report of the Colossians' conversion back to Paul. Paul and Timothy, in response to hearing about the faith of the Colossians, writes this letter to them. One more piece about the book of Colossians, uh, of background information before we move on. Uh, Judging by what Paul says in this letter, uh, it seems like the Christians in Colossae were being troubled by false teachers. So we're not certain exactly what the false teaching they were struggling against was, but if you read the letter, it's clear that Paul is writing both to encourage these young Christians in their walk and to guard them against teaching that was contrary to the gospel that Epaphras had brought them. So there you have it, first point. That is what you need to know about the letter to the Colossians. Second point, I want us just to walk through this passage and to see why Paul and Timothy are giving thanks to God. As I've said, the passage starts with a fairly standard New Testament greeting there in verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Lord willing, we will circle back to those words, grace uh, and peace. Paul dives in, as we've said, with his main point there in verse 3. Look again with me at verse 3. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Then in verse 4, Paul starts to explain why. Look at verse 4. Paul gives thanks, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. What has moved Paul and Timothy to give God thanks is the faith the love and the hope of the Colossians. Faith in God's people, I'm sorry, faith in Jesus, love for God's people, and hope in heaven. In other words, Paul is thankful that the Colossians have become Christians. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you, this is the heart of the Christian life. Faith in Jesus, love for God's people, and hope in heaven. In the Bible, God has given us lots of specific commands, and every one of them is important. We are not free to disregard any of God's Word. But it's so helpful to be reminded that the main thing, the essential heart, the core of what it means to live as a Christian, is to live with faith in Jesus Christ love for God's people, and hope in what God has promised to us in heaven. So saints, this is how we ought to think about what it means to be a healthy Christian and what it means to be a healthy church. If you want to see how you're doing as a Christian, 
then look at your life through these three lenses. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Are you resting and relying on Jesus and His cross and His resurrection for mercy and salvation from God? Are you living like Jesus' words are trustworthy? Do you have faith in what He says? Is your faith that ultimately you are going to be okay? Is that faith not in your competence and not in your resources and not in other people and not in yourself, but in Jesus? Is your faith in Christ Jesus? Christian, this morning, be reminded Jesus is worthy of your faith. If you trust Him, He will not let you down. Do you have love for all the saints? Do you desire and spend yourself pursuing the spiritual and physical welfare of other believers? Is there any sacrifice in your life for the good of God's people? Does it matter to you how other believers in your church are doing spiritually, emotionally, physically? Do you love God's people? What about hope? Where is the ultimate thing that you hope for? Is it down here on earth? Or is it what's laid up for you in heaven? Did you notice Paul talks about hope in a slightly different way than he talks about faith and love? So the Colossians' love is in their hearts. The Colossians' faith is in their hearts. The Colossians' hope is in heaven. So indirectly, Paul is certainly pointing to the hope that the Colossians have in their hearts. But directly, Paul is speaking about the object of their hope, which is in heaven waiting for them. At the end of the day, Jesus, uh, Paul is talking about Jesus himself who is in heaven and who is coming back for us. Jesus Christ and his eternal heavenly kingdom. It's very interesting if you read the writings of Paul who mentions this triad of faith, hope, and love on numerous occasions. It's very interesting if you read what Paul has to say about the relationship of these three things. There's so much we could say about how faith, hope, and love relate to one another. But what's unique about this passage is that Paul seems to be saying that love has its source in hope. Did you see that? He says he thanks God because he heard of their faith and the love they have because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. So Paul envisions that hoping in Jesus Christ, who's in heaven and is coming back to save all who trust in him, will move us to love one another. Isn't that interesting? One commentator puts it this way. He says, the solid facts about the future hope of Christians are a powerful motivation for costly love in the present. That's so good. Let me read it again. The solid facts about the future hope of Christians are a powerful motivation for costly love in the present. So Christian, if there are other believers in your life whom you are struggling to love right now, in other words, if you're alive, then think about the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Remember the hope that is coming to you when Jesus returns and is also coming to the Christian that you're finding it really hard to love. 
If the person that you're struggling to love is a believer, they won't be difficult forever. One day they'll be glorified. They'll be like Jesus. And you won't be irritable forever. Jesus has promised to make you one day as loving as he is. Doesn't that help you love them now? Think about how loving and gracious God has been to you to give you this hope of heaven and how that impacts how you ought to treat your brothers and sisters. Paul and Timothy always thank God because they've heard of the Colossians' faith in Jesus, their love for God's people, and the hope laid up for them in heaven. My prayer is that the saints at Franconia Baptist Church would be increasingly characterized by faith and hope and love. Let me say one more thing about faith uh, before we move on. Are there any kids here today? Kids? Anyone who qualifies themselves? Oh, Adam, I don't think so. So there are some kids, wonderful kids. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, I want to tell you something about faith, okay? So faith means believing in Jesus or trusting in Jesus in the Bible. But before I tell you about faith, I have a question for you, okay? This is a really, really easy question. Imagine that Mr. Marcus gave me a present. Maybe he gave you a basketball or something. Imagine that Mr. Marcus gave me a present, okay? So kids, who should I thank for giving me that present? Should I thank Mr. Don Malicote? No, no, I should not. Should I thank Mr. Andrew for the present that Marcus gave me? No. If Marcus gave me the present, I should thank Marcus. Right? That's, that's really easy. Well, kids, listen. In our Bible passage, Paul thanks God that other Christians have faith. He thanks God that they believe in Jesus. So who did their faith come from? Who did their faith come from? Their faith came from God. So kids, listen. Adults, listen. If you have faith in Jesus, if you believe in him, it's because God gave that to you. You would not have believed in him unless he did. So here's what you should do. If you believe in Jesus, thank God that you believe in Jesus because that's his gift. And listen, if you don't believe in Jesus, ask God to give you faith in Jesus. God loves to give people faith in his son so that they can be saved. Brothers and sisters, if you want to grow in faith and hope and love, then ask God to give you these things. Paul thanks God for them because they come from him in his sovereign mercy. So if I were Paul, I would have ended my sentence right there at the middle of verse 5, where the sentence ends in our English translations. But actually, in the original, verses 3 to 8 are one sentence. He would have gotten knocked for that in English class. But it's one big sentence. Keep that in mind. So we better better keep going. So there in the second half of verse 5, Paul continues to talk about the hope that's laid up for the Colossians in heaven. Look at the middle of verse 5. He says, of this, or of this hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. 
So Paul here reminds the Colossians that their faith and their hope and their love are rooted in the good news that they've heard about Jesus. All of this comes from God and it springs from hearing his gospel. If there is no gospel, there is certainly not anything for us to hope for in heaven other than an angry God who is righteous to condemn us for our sins. And notice there in verse 5 that Paul calls the gospel uh, the word of truth, right? Faith, hope, and love don't spring from positive thinking. They don't spring from psychological techniques. They don't spring ultimately from human willpower. Faith, hope, and love spring from the word of truth, which is the gospel or the good news about what God has done in Jesus through his death and resurrection. So by calling the gospel the word of truth, I think what Paul is doing is assuring the Colossians, hey, I know there are false teachers who are contradicting what you heard from Epaphras, but the gospel that Epaphras gave you, I, the apostle Paul, am telling you that's the word of truth. That's the genuine article. You see, he's warning them, he's inoculating them against false teaching. So down there at the end of verse 6, Paul again assures them that they have understood the grace of God in truth. So end of verse 5, he talks about the word of truth. End of verse 6, he talks about the grace of God in truth, understanding God's grace in truth. So I want to say a little bit more about what the gospel is or the the content of this word of truth in a moment. But first we need to see uh, what Paul says about the gospel there in the middle of verse 6 or the first half of verse 6. You see that Paul ends verse 5 by talking about the gospel. Here in verse 6, Paul gets to the heart of the passage. The first half of verse 6 is the nuclear core of the passage. Let me show you why I think that. I've already said that verses 3 to 8 are one big sentence. And Paul has organized this sentence and one line from the next sentence like an archery target. So it's a chiasm, but we're going to talk about it as an archery target. There are three rings in this passage around a bullseye. The bullseye is right there at the beginning of verse 6. Let me show you what I mean. So look at this. In verses 3 and 4, this is the outermost ring right at the beginning. Paul says, we thank God for you when we pray for you since we heard of your faith. So the outermost ring in this archery target is about praying and hearing. Right at the beginning, we thank God and we pray for you because we heard of you. We'll look at the very first words of verse 9. He says again, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray. Right? At the beginning and the end of the passage, Paul talks about we heard about you, and so we pray for you. He's booking, bookending the passage for us. So step one ring inward in the passage. This second, second ring is kind of held together by love. Right? We pray for you because we heard of you. Well, what did Paul hear about? He heard about their faith and their love because of the hope laid up for them. And then again, toward the end of this passage in verse 8, the last thing that Paul says is that we heard about your love. Look at the end of verse 8. He says that Epaphras made known to us your love in the Spirit. So we have 
Hearing and praying, hearing and praying. Faith, hope, and love, love. And then as we've just seen, we have the word of truth. And then verse 6, and at the end of verse 6, understanding the grace of God in truth. So praying and hearing, praying and hearing. Love and love, truth and truth. Why does Paul do that? Is he just trying to be fancy or impressive with his grammar? No, he is trying to draw our attention to the bullseye, which is the first half of verse 6. Look with me at what Paul says in verse 6. Paul says, The gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Brothers and sisters, that is the core of the passage. This is why Paul gives thanks to God. It's because the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the Colossians and all over the world. So if you're a note taker, I think this is the main point of the passage. Paul and Timothy thank God that the gospel is bearing the fruit of faith, love, and hope in the Colossians and all over the world. Paul and Timothy thank God that the gospel is bearing the fruit of faith, love, and hope in the Colossians and all over the world. Let me tell you why that is so wonderful. Listen, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, let me repeat what Andrew said at the beginning. We're really delighted that you're here. We hope you feel welcome here. And because we love you, we want you to know about this gospel that is at the bullseye of Paul's thanksgiving. Gospel means good news. And the gospel is good news about how God has reconciled sinful people to himself through Jesus. So the Bible teaches that in the beginning, when God created the world, God created mankind in his image or in his likeness. In other words, God created us to be good like he is good to be wise and kind like he is wise and kind. And God created us to live in love and trust toward him and in kindness and love toward one another. And immediately after God created Adam and Eve, the first human couple, before Adam and Eve served God in any way, God blessed them. He blessed them. He showered them with his personal favor because that's what kind of God he is. And the Bible says that after blessing them, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God commanded Adam and Eve, listen, to be fruitful and multiply all over the earth. In other words, God wanted Adam and Eve to populate the earth with people who looked like him, with people who bore his image, who were full of love and goodness like he is full of goodness, who were righteous and hate evil like he is righteous and hate evil. That was God's plan. But if you've looked around recently, you'll know that we don't live in a world that's full of people who are good like God is good. In fact, I don't know any people quite like that. If you've looked down at your own heart recently, you'll know that you don't do a very good job of reflecting God's image. You're not always good like he's good. You're not always kind and righteous like he is. 
And what's so tragic about that is that because of our sin, we have become hostile toward God. Our hearts naturally run from Him and hate Him. And because God is good, He has become hostile toward us. Because He loves what's good and hates what's evil, and because we from our hearts have become evil, God has become our enemy. And so instead of enjoying the favor with which God blessed us in the beginning, we live under His wrath. We live under His displeasure, and actually we're headed for His judgment. Whoever you are, if you have not been reconciled to God through Jesus, God Although he loves you, although he offers mercy to you, he is your enemy. That is the clear teaching of the Bible. And that's why our world is such a chaotic place. It's because of the chaos of our hearts that are hostile toward God. And so as mankind has populated, as we've been fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth, what has filled the earth is not the beautiful, good image of God, but the rotten fruit, the toxic fruit of sin, of violence, of sexual depravity, of pride, of greed, of oppression, of prejudice. And that's why God has promised a terrifying day of judgment when all of mankind's rebellion gets exactly what it deserves. But friend, let me tell you the good news of the gospel, the word of truth. Because God loved his enemies, God sent his son Jesus Christ to live the life that we should have lived. Jesus always lived with perfect faith in God, love for his neighbor, and hope in God's salvation. Instead of enjoying the favor and the blessedness that Jesus deserved for reflecting God's image well, you know what Jesus got? Jesus got what we deserved. Right? Jesus took on himself the punishment that we deserved for being hostile toward God. When Jesus died on the cross, he got treated like God's enemy, even though he was God's son because that's what we deserved. And after he died, Jesus rose from the dead so that he could offer mercy to anyone who would turn to him. So for anyone who will acknowledge that they are the perpetrator in their relationship with God, that they have not borne his image, that they have not reflected his goodness, that their hearts are hostile toward God, for anyone who will acknowledge that and will trust in Jesus for mercy, guess what the disposition of God becomes toward those people? Well, we read about it there at the end of verse 2. It's a disposition of grace and peace. You know what grace is, right? Grace is undeserved favor. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, there is nothing better than knowing that you live under the favor of God because of Jesus. You know what peace is in the Bible? Peace is not just an absence of war. It certainly includes that. But in the Bible, peace is when everything is as it should be. Friend, listen, Jesus can bring peace to the most fundamental dynamic in your heart, to your relationship with God. 
That's the gospel. If you will trust in him, Jesus will give you, from God his Father, grace and peace. And you notice, grace and peace don't just come to Christians as from a distant relative, right, that you see once a year at Thanksgiving. Uncle Joey, so good to see you. Grace and peace. Bye. See you next year. Right? Grace and peace come to us from whom? From God our Father. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, for all those who are in Christ, we live under the grace and peace of God our Father who adopted us in love when we were his enemies through his son Jesus. If you're not a Christian and you want that, come and talk to me after the service. Talk to anyone you've seen up here. Talk to the friend who brought you. We would love to talk to you about how to receive grace and peace from God through Jesus Christ. Well, the word of truth, the gospel, is that Jesus died and rose to shower sinners with God's grace and peace when they turned to him. And this is why Paul and Timothy are giving God thanks. Because this message about the gospel, what does verse 6 say? It says that this message has borne fruit and increased all over the world and in Colossae. See, just like God commanded Adam and Eve in the beginning to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his image bearers, and even though we rebelled against God, and so instead when we were fruitful and multiplied, we filled the earth with the toxic fruit of sin, because of the gospel, God's saving message is being fruitful and multiplying all over the world. Look, it happened in Franconia. Here sit a room of people full of faith, hope, and love because the gospel has borne fruit in northern Virginia, in the ends of the earth. And Paul sees that going on in Colossae, and he gives God thanks. Do you see what Paul values that leads him to give thanks? It's not just that his friends are doing well. It's not that his own ministry was fruitful. The Colossians weren't converted through his ministry. They were converted through Epaphras' ministry. The reason that Paul and Timothy give God thanks, the thing that they value that causes them to give God's thanks, is the progress of the gospel for the glory of God. That's what they value. That's why they always give God thanks. As I trust we'll see in coming weeks as we study through Colossians, ultimately... What Paul and Timothy value is Jesus Christ himself. The subtitle for this whole series in Colossians is Christ above all. And so even though the church in Colossae does not puff Timothy's ministry platform, even though it doesn't come from Paul himself, they are so grateful that the gospel has borne fruit in Colossae because they value Christ above all. So, brothers and sisters, third and final point, much more briefly, how should we apply these things to our lives? We've already mentioned a number of applications from this passage. Here are a few more in rapid fire. We could talk about how faith, hope, and love come from the gospel. So, if you want more faith, hope, and love, soak in the gospel. 
We could talk about how we might imitate the example of Epaphras in evangelism. How does the gospel bear fruit and multiply? It does so as God's people speak about it to their friends and neighbors. I know a Sunday school class going on about that right now. We could talk about how how Paul encourages the Colossians in a way that doesn't puff them up, but gives glory to God. If I'm a Colossian reading this letter, I'm feeling affirmed because Paul has said, hey, I thank God for your faith, hope, and love. But I'm not feeling proud because he doesn't thank me. He thanks God for the faith, hope, and love. We could learn how to be encouragers like Paul. So there are many, many applications we could make from this passage, but you won't be surprised that the main application that I want to make from this passage is this. This passage challenges us to practice gospel-centered gratitude. This passage challenges us to practice gospel-centered gratitude. Listen, our big problem, uh, the reason for most of our sin and our unhappiness is our self-centeredness. Sadly, it is, it is often the case with me that most of the things that make me happy or sad, that cause me to give thanks or to grumble, they have to do directly with me. My circumstances, my relationships, my ministry, my pursuits, my finances, etc. And it's not wrong to think about yourself, right? You can't help but be yourself. Uh, but if I'm honest, a lot of times I do a much better job loving myself than loving my neighbor as myself, let alone loving the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So friends, what if one way to turn from our sinful selfishness was to practice giving thanks for gospel fruit in other people? So it's right and wonderful when we thank God for what we receive, both our physical blessings and what we receive in the gospel. Absolutely, we should do that. But this passage challenges us to thank God for gospel fruit in others to the glory of God. So brothers and sisters, when you pray through the membership directory, and I hope that you pray through the membership directory. We're going to say more about that next week when we get into Paul's prayer. As you pray through the directory, thank God for the faith, hope, and love of other believers. Thank you, God, that this brother loves you. God, he loves you because you loved him first. Thank you, God, that this sister has hope laid up in heaven. Glory to Jesus for having mercy on her right? When we sing songs in church, thank God that what you're singing isn't just true about you. It's true about all of the believers in this room, all of the believers in the world. Thank God for that. This is why we thank God for other churches, churches full of people that we will probably never meet because we want to be turned out from ourselves to value God's purposes, his kingdom, his gospel, his glory, his son. I don't know about you, but if I don't have some kind of written list uh, to help me be intentionally thankful for things outside myself, I won't do it unless I write it. That's just how I am. If I don't write it down, I won't do it. If you're different, wonderful. But if that's what it takes 
for you to practice this kind of gospel-centered gratitude. Brothers and sisters, write it, write it down and pray through it often. Start with the directory. The, the church administrator wrote this down for you. You know, I have never met a Christian who was as happy or who had as much faith and love and hope as the Apostle Paul seems to have had from his letters. And I can't help but think that it had something to do with the fact that he was always thanking God in prayer for the fruit of the gospel all over the world. What a delightful way to obey God. So Paul starts this letter by blessing God's people with his grace and peace from God their Father and for giving thanks for the fruit of faith, hope, and love that the gospel has borne in them. So saints, let's apply the sermon now uh, by doing the same thing as we pray uh, and then as we sing and as we take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the gospel has borne fruit in Franconia and all over the world to the glory of your son, Jesus. God, thank you that we and that all of your people live under your grace and peace because of our adoption in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you. We praise and bless you for that. Lord, would you work in us through your gospel to produce this kind of gospel-centered gratitude so that we might have joy, so that we might be fruitful, so that your name might be glorified. Lord, we ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Saints, let's stand now as we sing.